1 to 18. It's in biology, so. 
but it gives us everything we need to have to lead a holy life. Human beings love to imagine the what-ifs, or what else could have happened. I'm sure most of us have a long list of questions we want to ask God when we do get to heaven. She'd have 
um, witness to all of the miracles, all of the teachings that Jesus had brought. But as we study this relationship with her in John chapter 20, we want to focus on the devotion she showed to her Lord. We know that in all four gospel accounts of the death and resurrection of Jesus, that Mary was present at the crucifixion. She was also at the tomb the following morning along with the other women. Again, Luke says, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. As they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day and rise. And they remembered his words, and returning to the tomb, they told these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves and went home, marvelling at what had happened. You can read exactly the same account in Matthew, Mark and John. But in John's account, he focuses just on Mary. But one's got a question, why does he do that? We know that Mary wasn't actually alone. He says, so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken our Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Remember for the rest of the account, John focuses on Mary. The students of the Gospel, we know that John's Gospel in particular has many layers, it's multi-layered. There's a saying that goes around that it's shallow enough for a child to splash and paddle in, but it's deep enough for an elephant to swim. And when you start to study John's Gospel, you just realise how true that is. This chapter is no exception. On the one hand, the main focus is on the resurrection, and this is what most Bible commentators focus on. There is also a nod here to prevailing Jewish law in that it was Peter and John who looked into the tomb after Mary had told them that Jesus was missing. Thus, the disappearance of Jesus' body was corroborated by two males, as it lays out in the book of Deuteronomy. This is a very in-depth piece of scripture, and John wants us to focus on Mary Magdalene. She was a disciple of Christ. What is a disciple of Christ? What should we be? What do we need to do to display the fact that we are Christians? When you leave this building and go out into the street out there, how would anybody know you are a Christian? Do your neighbours know you are a Christian? Do you have to tell them you are? Or do they know by the way you are? Who you are? And the love that you exhibit for David Watson has written a really good book on discipleship, and in it he says, When Buddha lay dying, his disciples asked how they could best remember him. 
He told them, don't bother. It was his teaching, not his person, that counted. With Jesus, it is all together. <coughs> Everything is about him. Discipleship means knowing him, loving him, believing in him, and being totally committed to him. We know a lot about him by studying our Bibles and other books. He gives us great head knowledge. But do we know him? I can read all I want to about Winston Churchill, but I will never know him. Mary had walked with Jesus two, possibly three years. She was an eyewitness to every miracle that he'd ever put forward. She'd heard his teachings and seen what it meant to be a servant leader. And yet, how would you feel personally if you had walked with Jesus Christ in the flesh for three years? You'd seen all these miracles, you'd seen him raise Lazarus from the dead, and here he is, in a tomb, dead, crucified and buried, and buried hurriedly. God's chosen servant, the Messiah. And he was dead, just like any other human being. How do you feel? We forget sometimes when we read scripture and we study scripture. These were people, they were human beings, they were just like us, same feelings, same thought processes. She was there, standing by the cross of Jesus for his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas. Mary Magdalene. If you had been his disciples then, you would have been shattered by those events. Not upset, you would have been shattered. You think, how can the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Messiah, be dead? How on earth could that possibly have happened? We've seen him raise the dead. We've seen him cure lepers. We've seen him get people who were born lame just stand up, fully formed. What was she to do? What was she to think? Remember at this stage, they didn't understand what Jesus had been teaching them about the resurrection. David Watson again writes something that I think is quite useful. It made me stop and think when I was preparing this. He says, in Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, volume four, for those who might want to look at it, the writer makes the following comment. The personal allegiance of the disciples to Jesus is conformed by their conduct in the days between the crucifixion and the resurrection. The reason for the deep depression which marks these days is to be found in the fate which had befallen the person of Jesus Christ. No matter what view we take of the story about the walk to Emmaus, the fact that he is the theme of their conversation on the way corresponds in every sense to the relationship of the disciples with Jesus before his arrest and execution. On the other hand, it is nowhere stated or even hinted at that after the death of Jesus, his teachings were a source of strength to his followers or that they had the impression of leaving a valuable legacy in the word of Jesus. That's a point of considerable importance when we consider 
who Jesus is, who Jesus was. We have a relationship with the living God. He's not something idle. He's not somebody we read about in the pages of the book. When we pray, he listens. He's in here now with us, listening to us, making sure I get it right. Mary stood by and had watched everything that had transpired at the crucifixion, the rushed burial of Jesus in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. So early in the morning, at the beginning of the Jewish week, Mary, whilst it was still dark, went to the tomb. Why? Because she wanted to be where he was. Even though he was dead, she still wanted to be by him. She wanted to ensure that his burial was done properly, that his body was properly anointed and made where it should have been. And this was done at some significant risk to herself. It was dark. She'd gone to a place of burial on her own with the other women. She would have been an easy target for anybody hanging around. In fact, there would have probably been lots of Roman soldiers around because of the day before. They would have wanted to make sure. We know the tomb was guarded. Yet, she still wanted to go there. She wanted to honour him. How do we honour him in our everyday lives? What sacrifices do we make on an ongoing basis? It's easy to think, well, I go to church. But that doesn't make you a Christian. How do you live your life? What sacrifices do you make to God? Where does Jesus fit in your strategy of life? Would we put our lives at risk for him? It's a shocking fact to realise that more Christians are martyred now than in the Great Oppression from the emperors in the early Roman times. Conservative estimates place it at around 10,000 Christians a year are martyred for their faith, which is a frightening prospect. Noticing that this stone had been rolled away, she ran to tell Simon Peter and John. She didn't know where his body was. Where had they taken him? She wanted the disciples, the apostles, to know. They ran back. They saw the grave clothes lying there and the face cloth folded so they knew it wasn't robbers. They wouldn't have bothered doing that. They would have just snatched the body and taken it away. But still, they didn't understand the significance of this, even though Jesus had told them over and over again that he was going to die and he would be raised on the third day. We think, how dense could they have been? Really, he told them. But we do this with the benefit of hindsight and our Bibles. We have the whole thing laid out for us. And we can take that for granted. It's easy to read it on the page and never let it go in here. It goes into our eyes and straight out again sometimes. It doesn't sit in the bit in the middle and we don't contemplate what this means for me, what does it mean for our church. When the disciples left and went back to their homes, Mary was still there. She had come back. She was outside the tomb. She wanted to 
Where is my master? Where is his body? What have you done with it? She looked inside again, crying. She saw two angels sitting in the place where Jesus had lain, one on the head, one on the foot. They asked her, why are you weeping? And she tells them, no questions about, well, who are you? What are you doing in my master's tomb? What would we have said if we'd seen two people sitting there? We wouldn't have automatically assumed they've got really white clothes on, so they must be angels. We would have said, what are you doing here? And we might have even thought, are they the robbers? Are they going to do something unpleasant to me? But she was so wound up about Jesus that she said, what have you done with my master? She turns, and there's Jesus. We're getting into very deeply personal territory with Mary now. It's her Lord. He said, my Lord. Is he your Lord? You know, we are, as the church, full of body parts, as Paul tells us. And some of us think, well, I'm not really worth very much because I don't do very much. But every single person in this room, in every church in the world, is of equal importance to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Without what you do, however small you think it might be, the church will not be the perfect, spotless bride for Jesus. Her devotion overrode everything that she was scared of that could have happened at that point. She was in a dangerous situation, potentially. She didn't know. But yet she still wanted to be where he was. She turns and there is Jesus in front of her. But she doesn't immediately recognize him. The reasons for this could be many-fold. We don't actually know. The Bible doesn't tell us. You can read lots of uh, theological books which tell you what probably the reason was, but we don't actually know. And if God hasn't told us, it perhaps isn't the relevant point. not recognising him. She supposes he's the gardener, so we now know the clocks move forward so it's daylight and people probably start work. The gardener, they get somebody who might have had the gardener. So she might have assumed that he'd come and he'd move Jesus to a more permanent tomb, that he might have removed the body from Joseph of Arimathea's tomb to a tomb that had been prepared for him. But she, notice what she says, she says, I will take him away. She wanted to take him away. She wanted to clean. She wanted to be there with him. However, when Jesus says her name, she instantly recognises him. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. She knew his voice. She recognised him as her teacher and her master. And she used the expression, Rabboni. He then goes on to tell her not to cling to him, as he has not yet ascended to the Father. Now there are many, many interpretations of what do not cling to him means, if you want to read those up. 
time doesn't permit us to go into those. But I kind of think if I had been in Mary's position and I'd found him alive, the last thing I would want to do would be to let him go. I'd have clung to him so hard because I wouldn't want to lose him again. And Jesus knew that he was going to ascend. He tells her that is what's going to happen. So don't cling to me until I have ascended. She, along with all of the disciples, needed the infilling of the Holy Spirit to understand what had happened and what had been taught to them. But the helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. She just found Jesus Christ alive. Humanly speaking, she would have wanted to cling to him. We would have done. I don't think there's a single person in this room if you'd lost somebody dear to you that you loved, husband or wife, or child, and then they suddenly were standing in front of you alive again, you would not want to let that person go. These are personal thoughts of mine, but I look on it as if, well, if I was in that situation, what would I feel like? Jesus follows up this command by sending it to the other disciples to tell them that he will send to his father and their father, to his God and their God. Notice his God and our God, his father and our father. And notice how he had honoured Mary. She had honoured him. He honours her for this selfless devotion. She was the first one to see the tomb empty. She was the first one to see the risen king. And she was sent to the apostles to tell them that he was going to be ascended. Throughout John's description of the role of Mary Magdalene, during the resurrection, he is reminding us over and over again about the total obedience, the total devotion that Mary showed to her king. He also, at the same time, highlights the importance of our personal faith in Jesus Christ. We are called to a community, to church, but if we don't have personal, strong, growing faith, the church can never be what it wants to be, what it should be, what Christ wants it to be. It comes as a shock to many people that whatever you do in church, Jesus might not think that's important. What's important to him is your personal sacrifices, your personal devotion to him. That's what's important to the risen king, what you think of him. And he wants to be with you. He wants you to pray to him. He wants you to talk to him. When we talk about knowing God, how do you get to know God? How do you get to know Jesus? By prayer, by speaking to him on your own, together as the church. The more you pray, funnily enough, the more you get to know about him. Many of those people who are persecuted for their faith, the strongest thing they have is prayer. Many of them don't have Bibles, which is why Brother Andrew started. There are 
people who have a big church and the only piece of scripture they have is a piece of paper that's torn from a Bible that they share. Yet the strongest thing that binds them together is their faith, is prayer. David Watson, again, probably gets a bit David Watson's book a lot, but I do highly recommend it. He's a fantastic book on discipleship. He says, Jesus calls us into common discipleship. He calls us to share our lives both with him and with one another. In love. Discipleship is never easy. Often there may be pains and tears and frequently we shall have to rethink our values and ambitions as we seriously seek to follow Jesus Christ. But we are not called to do this on our own. Alongside the inward power of the Holy Spirit, God wants us to experience the encouraging, supportive love of other disciples of Jesus Christ. It is in the strength of our relationship together in Christ that we can win the battles against the powers of darkness and help one another to fulfill the task that God's given us. I've often asked myself that question I asked you at the beginning. Why do I want to go to heaven? I read Revelations at the end. It, it sounds a fantastic place. I can't even begin to imagine. John couldn't really describe what he had witnessed. But over the years that I have personally followed Christ, I've come to realise that I really need to be, and I really want to be, wherever he is. Because that's the place of safety, that's the place of real peace. The psalmist in Psalm 84, at the beginning of the psalm, says, My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And Jesus says also, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Mary was a fully committed, devoted disciple of Jesus Christ. What about us? 